All right, this week was an exciting week for me and many of my closest friends um, because uh, something happened. Um, a man by the name of Don James, nobody, okay, a man by the name of Don James, a significant figure in my life, um, growing up in Seattle, Washington, um, and a lifelong Washington Huskies fan and alumni of the University of Washington. Some of my first words, in fact, were go Huskies, because I grew up in a house very passionate about football, especially Husky football, because my grandfather played for the University of Washington. And so Don James was this famed coach of the Huskies from 1975 to 1992, and the coach of the national championship team in 1991. Woo! Go dogs! Nobody. Okay, that's all right. Um, the good news is that they commemorated his life on Saturday before the, the home game. Uh, right outside of um, Bank of America Center, there's a statue, life-size statue of Don James. And people came and spoke wonderful words of him and commemorated his life, And as is appropriate for someone with such a legacy, someone with so many great contributions to, to Husky football. Um, his life was mixed with some controversy and some other things, but I'm not going to talk about that. Why would we talk about that? We just want to talk about the good things that he did, especially for Husky Nation. Um, and, you know, it's just interesting to me that that happened this week. Um, some of you may be unaware of another thing that we commemorate this week, uh, which is this is All Saints Sunday. It's a Sunday we pause in the calendar year, the year of the church, to celebrate and commemorate the work of those who've gone before us, the great saints of the church who have worked to establish the foundation of our faith. And um, and actually, this is even more special Sunday because this commemorates the 500-year anniversary of the nailing of the 95 Theses to Wittenberg Chapel and the start, the launch of the Protestant church as we know it today, that they gave 95 grievances against the Roman Catholic Church, um, and it launched us into what we experience here in the Protestant expression of church. So it's a big day, historically. And I thought it would be appropriate for us as a community of faith um, to look back and see the foundations of our faith, see the people who most influenced, maybe even unbeknownst to us, the ways they influenced our faith and the church that we know today. So as we do that, we're going to dive in and look at those first saints, those first disciples who walked alongside Jesus, who were commissioned with the vision to um, grow the church, to be the church um, of Jesus to the whole world. So before we dive into scripture, why don't I pray for us? Lord, thanks for this gathering, for your presence here with us, we do pray that you would show us um, the beauty of your gospel, the beauty of your kingdom, that we'd be compelled, and Lord, that you would do in us what we cannot contrive for ourselves, that you would give us a compelling vision to partner with you in the work of your kingdom expanding into every part of our um, town and our cities. For the name of Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. So, the disciples, right after Jesus um, died and was raised again, um, I imagine were pretty struck. They were pretty overwhelmed with their circumstances and perhaps disillusioned, um, questioning. Some were doubting. Um, some were encouraged in their faith. And ahead of them um, was this challenge that Jesus gave them to live out his call, um, what we would call the Great Commission. We're going to look at it in a minute. But I think it'd be helpful for us to think about who the church was at that time in order to know what the significance of this call that Jesus gives them. So in Acts chapter 1, um, it just, just as a way to point to you, it tells us 
that Peter stood up among the believers. This is after Jesus' resurrection, the very beginning stage of the church, and it says it was a group of believers numbering 120. Now, I tell you that because it's really helpful for us to know that the church wasn't just the 11. It was 120 believers after the resurrection of Jesus. They were meeting together, listening to Peter, listening to his call to them. And it's really important for us to know that there was something. There was something there. Now, it's important because as a church planter myself, I think about um, someday if I were to build a church that had 120, there would be much rejoicing. Much I mean, that's like, that's a big number, right? 120 is something. It's really important, and it's really good, and I want us to value the 120 that the church was in Acts 1, but I want us not to be content with that, because I don't think Jesus was content with the 120. He actually had a bigger vision, and he calls his disciples, which by extension, he calls us into participating with him to enact this vision. So if we flip back, we see in Matthew 28 the great commission that Jesus gave to these disciples. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely... I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, this is Jesus's kind of last hurrah. If I can continue the metaphor of coaching and football, because I'm a bit of a football fan myself, it's like the coach coming into the locker room before the Super Bowl. And he's giving them that last pep talk, the final word as they go out to defeat their opponent. This, this is like the culmination of every coach's speech, right? The, the Super Bowl speech. They may never get a chance to say it again. This is so important. And hopefully, what he's telling them is not new. It's things that they've heard, that they've seen, that they've experienced, they've done in practice, they've had in other games. But it's this one moment, this crystal clear vision of what he's calling them into in this game. This is just a snippet of the importance of this kind of speech Jesus is giving, right? He's calling his disciples, those who've been with him for three years. He knows them. They know him. He is their Lord, their teacher. And they've just witnessed, friends, they've just witnessed not only his death, but his resurrection from the dead. This is amazing, right? They experienced all the miracles, the kingdom coming, it's being enacted in his presence on earth. And he said, I am king and the kingdom is coming. But his death and his resurrection put a big exclamation mark on that and said, I am the rightful king of this kingdom. And so he brings his 11 disciples together. Some believed, some doubted. I think it actually connotes a mixing of both. And he gives them these words. Remember, remember what I said? The church wasn't just these 11. No, no. The church was about 120. 120 is good. What Jesus doesn't do, what I probably would have done, maybe you would do too, is say, okay, I want you to do this thing. I want you to reach all the nations. But why don't you start with the 120? The 120 is good. Invest in these 120. Invest your resources here. Give all your time. Give all your energy. Like, disciple them. Focus on the 120. Because 120 is good. 
But he does not do that. Instead, he gives them a vision for something so far beyond their experience and maybe even their expectation. There's a poet that famously said, if you want to build a ship, don't summon people to buy wood, prepare tools, distribute jobs, and organize the work. Rather, teach people the yearning for the wild, boundless ocean. Jesus is giving them a clarion call to reach every nation. He's not saying, here are the tools, the structure, start with these 120. What you have is good, just work with those. Instead, he gives them a vision for something so much greater. In fact, it's more than really just a vision. He's giving them the responsibility for all nations, all people. The words here, all ethnic groups. It really lends us to the idea that no one is excluded. Everyone. So instead of asking the question, how can we enact this vision? Who are we really responsible for? Just these 120, the things that we already have? Jesus says, no, no, you're responsible for all of it. You're responsible for everyone. There's no one that escapes, no one outside of this vision. Now, it's important for us to know that, and you've had this spoken among you and to you, that the call is, is not to go, but in your going, make disciples. Making disciples is the vision. It's rooted in relationship, connected to people. But their discipleship should lead to reaching every nation, every people. I'm surprised by this vision, frankly. If I were sitting there with Jesus, I would be surprised that Jesus, who knew us, was calling this group of people to enact this vision. I mean, come on, let's be honest. They're the uneducated. They're fishermen, tax collectors. They're dirty, sandaled people. They don't, they don't know what Jesus is trying. Like, how are they going to be the guys? And Jesus does not call them based on their competency. He calls them based on his sufficiency. Hey, the call to reach all people is based on who Jesus is, completely holy. It's wrapped up in who he is, not in who they are. Their commingled doubt and fear, their ethnocentric vision, their lack of education, lack of experience. Jesus calls them to this great commission because he is capable of fulfilling it, not them. I think in order for us to live into this vision, because it's a call just, not just for the disciples, but for all of us, I think it will require three shifts in thinking. And as we dive in, I hope you'll see the three shifts that occur even in the disciples. And with each of the shifts that I'm going to give you, I'm also going to give you one practical thing that you can do, a missional practice that some of you are already doing. The first shift that needs to happen is that they need to move from, um, from addition to multiplication thinking. So there's a story in scripture, one of my very favorites. It might be familiar to some of you. It's found in John 4, about a woman who in the heat of the day, in isolation, 
goes to the well in order to draw water. And Jesus makes his way through the town and sends his disciples on a mission, and he meets this woman at the well. And as the story goes, the woman is somebody uh, not a very good reputation and likely was withdrawing from the community that she's a part of in order to not be seen, not interact. And Jesus meets her on that day, and he strikes up a conversation with her and says, give me something to drink. This woman is shocked. She is a Samaritan. He is a Jew, which historically did not get along. They were enemies with one another. And this Jew comes into her turf and asks her for a drink of water. And she says, rightly so, who are you? to ask me for a drink. I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. I'm a woman. You're a man. This is breaking all kinds of social constructs. And Jesus responds with this strange phrase. He says, if you knew who it is that asks, you would have asked me, and I would have given you living water. And the woman says, well, give me some of that. That sounds great. Then I don't have to keep coming back here. This is fantastic. I love this idea. And the story goes, it continues, that Jesus unfolds before her very eyes, speaking the very things that bring her the deepest shame. It's like he sheds light on the deepest darkness of her soul. He puts it out there. And something happens in her interaction with this Jesus that changes her forever. She meets, as Jesus says, the one whom her ancestors seek to worship. And her life is changed. At this very moment... Very appropriately so. The disciples come back from their errand. They find Jesus strangely talking to this woman. They don't really know what to make of it. And yet the woman leaves her water jar and goes back to her town. Now this is where the story gets really good. Now every sermon or every talk I've ever heard on this passage pretty much ends the story there, talking about the woman, how Jesus invites us in our shame and brokenness to come into his relationship with him, and this is he restores us and gives us new life. True, all true, good things. But don't miss the most important part of this story, okay? And I challenge you, sometime today, maybe open up John 4 and read this, because you'll see it differently. So the disciples come back, they're a little confused, and Jesus says this really interesting thing that didn't make any sense to me until about a few years ago. He says to them, lift up your eyes and look at the harvest. Look at the fields, they are white for harvest. And then I put myself in that story. And I realized that they were up at a well and down across the valley was the town of of Samaria. And as the story tells us, the people were coming to Jesus from the town in droves because of the woman's testimony. She ran back into the community that had ostracized her, back into the place of her shame and declared, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. A very strange testimony mind you, but compelling one. And so all of the people from the town are making their way to Jesus. And picture this. If the disciples lifted up their eyes and they looked out, what would they see? But a harvest of souls making their way, possibly wearing white robes, towards him. Now, this is important because sometimes in our sharing of faith, when we're talking about discipleship, when we're trying to make disciples, we think addition instead of multiplication. See, addition would say, this wonderful woman had a transforming experience with Jesus. She's in the kingdom. The disciples get excited, woo-woo, and then they invite her to become a follower of Jesus and come along with her. 
So add one, great, bonus, woo, we get one more for the kingdom. But what is happening here is Jesus is showing them the multiplicative nature of the kingdom of God. Not just this one woman, but when she went back, when she was sent back after encountering the living God, she came back with her whole village and innumerable amounts of people met Jesus that day, turned their lives over to him as Lord. In order to accomplish and fulfill the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations, we have to stop thinking about additive growth and think about multiplicative growth because behind every person is a network. Behind this woman was a village. Behind every person you know is a whole network of people that may not know the good news of the kingdom of God. I think the disciples needed to shift their thinking in that way. We do too. In order that we would see not just one added to the kingdom, but hundreds and thousands. And as a side point, the disciples in their work to demonstrate the kingdom probably couldn't have been as effective as that woman sent back into the place of her shame to declare the good news of the kingdom. Missional practice to help with this. My goal when I moved to Santa Barbara, where I moved, I didn't know anybody in Santa Barbara. I landed there 15, almost 16 months ago, and I just showed up on the scene. And I tried to meet people, because that's what you do. And so I set a goal for myself to meet three people every single day. And at first, it was a little awkward, um, but it, now that I've been doing it for 15 months, it's just like... Uh, snowball rolling down the hill. It just happened so naturally. Um, but I met people in my neighborhood. I met people at the grocery store. I met people at the coffee shop, you know, filling up my gas, whatever. I mean, I just introduced myself unapologetically to everyone because frankly, when you don't know anybody and you know you need to know people, it just propels you into meeting people, right? Um, and to be fair, and I've gotten this feedback from people even in our church, is that I'm an extreme extrovert. If you haven't detected that already this morning, this is me here and out there. Um, I'm very extroverted. And so it kind of comes naturally to me. So not everybody has the capacity to even remember or have three conversations with people every day. Like, that's okay. It's, it's just personality, right? But the principle is the same, right? I was putting myself out there to meet people every day. And behind this was a conviction, a belief, a theological understanding of the nature of God, that he is already at work in Goleta. He's already worked there. And I'm looking for the woman at the well with networks behind her. I'm looking for people who could participate with us in this work of the kingdom, this church plant, who are spiritually open, spiritually seeking, whatever. And so I would meet three people a day, and then this is going to be my best-selling book um, someday, uh, so don't steal this. Okay, trademark, hashtag, I don't know, whatever. Um, <laughs> that when I meet people, they, make, they have one of two responses. Either they lean in, or they lean back. The lean backs are sometimes the people, most of the time, people who have been hurt by the church, offended, they had a bad experience, they have a Christian person in their life who is a nasty human being, and um, all those things combined. The people who lean in are typically people who are curious, they're open, they're seeking, they've had some kind of spiritual longing, thirst, experience that's cultivated in them a desire for God. And so when I meet them and they lean in, I lean in. 
And I ask more questions. Tell me about your spiritual background. Tell me about your church experience. What do you think Santa Barbara needs? Have you sensed the spiritual climate of the city? I mean, I'll make up questions on the spot, right? Like that's, that's not a problem for me. But um, some of you, you might need to you know, have a pocket full of questions. Um, but if they lean back, it doesn't mean I'm excluding myself from relationship with them. It just means that it's going to take longer for them to be open and to be in relationship um, with other believers. So the idea here is that God is already at work. I'm looking for ways to join him. So as a church, an established church, I mean, you have something like the 120. That's something that's good. And sometimes what happens is that we can become focused on what we have and we start always inward looking instead of outward facing, which every church plant starts as outward facing because you have to, you have nothing to hold on to. You have nothing to maintain because there is nothing. It's the beauty of church planting. So you have to be careful because what happens is we get, blind, we get a blind spot, right? We, we start focusing on what is here and keeping it safe and protected, and we forget about what's out there. So some of us maybe in this church have had relationships with your networks. Um, you are the woman at the well. You've got a network of people behind you who don't have a relationship with Jesus. They are not interested maybe at this time, or maybe they are. Maybe they're spiritually curious, but... See what I'm saying? Like, if you were just to stay here and do everything here, instead of being sent as God's ambassador into your network, you're thinking additive instead of multiplicative. And some of us, you know, our relationships are all with other believers, which I think community is important. I think it's really good that you grow in spiritual formation, discipleship, good. But some of us, you just, you don't know people who don't know Jesus. And so your job then, in a response to this, your missional practice is to put yourself out there and meet some folks. Not because you're, they're a project, not because it's your job to win them over to Jesus, because we fundamentally believe God is already at work in that person's life. So we join him in his work. So meet some people. The second shift that needs to happen is we need to shift from being um, thinking of scarcity mindset to abundance mindset. Now, I have no doubt, because I've read the New Testament, about the disciples' response to Jesus' call to reach all nations, because we see it actually multiple times in Scripture in Jesus' call to do things. So a perfect example of this is found in Luke 9. It's one of my favorite stories of Jesus and the disciples. There they are after a long day. There's a whole crowd of people following Jesus, wanting to know his teaching, wanting to hear him speak. And the disciples, with their compassionate hearts, walk up to Jesus and say, Jesus, why don't you send the crowds away so they can get some food? You know, they're, they're hungry. Give, send them away. And Jesus, in his hilarious way, says to them, you give them something to eat. And I can see the disciples, the puzzled look on their face, because it would have been my puzzled look. And they said, how are we possibly going to be able to feed these people? And they look around, they're one, two, three, four, five, six. There's like 5,000, Jesus, there's like 5,000 people, that doesn't include women and children, in this crowd. There is no way we have the resources to feed all these people. Jesus is crazy. And he says, well, what do you have? <laughs> this silly amount of, you know, just a couple fish and some loaves. Okay. Use that. Okay, what doesn't happen, which I would have loved if this would have happened, is that right then and there, Jesus, like, automatically 
down from heaven falls tables with nice tablecloths, banquet of food, just enough for 5,000 plus people to experience. Like, oh, can you imagine the excitement in that moment? The, the, the applause of the people. I mean, that would have been amazing. But what happens instead is that Jesus sends his disciples out with the food. And what happens with the food? It multiplies as it's being poured out. Not before, not to assure them that he's going to be faithful to what he said, but as they're giving out, he is replenishing the supply. As they pour out, Jesus is showing his abundant provision. They were focused on the lack. They were focused on the scarcity of their resources. And Jesus says to them, essentially, what you need is in the harvest. What you need will be provided as you go out. Abundance is a product of expansion. We experience the abundance of God when we go out, when we press our limits, when we go beyond what our resources are. The resources for the harvest are in the harvest, and Jesus is there. The missional practice for us here. On my phone at 10.02, It reminds me every day to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Because Luke 10, 2 says, Jesus sends his disciples out two by two into the neighborhoods, into the towns, and essentially says, go proclaim the kingdom everywhere you go. Oh, and just so you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So, He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers for the harvest field. The workers are few. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is abundant. So a missional practice that I put in my life is I pray at 10.02 for workers in the harvest field, for people to labor in the fields of Goleta and Santa Barbara. It's a risky prayer. I'm going to just put it out there. I would encourage you to do that if you don't already. But often what happens is God makes us an answer to our own prayers. So when you pray for God to send more workers, be ready that he taps you on the shoulder and says, you go. You're a worker for the harvest. And just in case you think, I don't have what is needed, just remember the disciples didn't think they did either. But their call, his call on their life is not based on their capacity, but on his amazing abundance. The last shift that we need to make um, is from recruitment to partnership. If I could change anything about the church, I know I, have, I don't have that power, but if I could dream a bit, if I could change anything about the church, it would be for us to stop recruiting people to our stuff. We've been trying that, actually, for a long time. The decline of the church is 60-year-old decline, and we've been trying all these great things to bring people to us. But Jesus is sending them out into the harvest, out into the mission field, out into every nation. So it's a a fundamental shift that had to take place in the disciples, and I think it has to take place in us. When Jesus, in Luke 9 and 10, sends those disciples out, 
he sends them out in pairs and he says, don't take anything with you. Just go out into the field proclaiming the peace of Christ. If the peace of Christ is there in that town, in that home, stay with them there. And declare the kingdom, pronounce the goodness of God, heal the sick if sick are there, uh, whatever needs to happen to announce the authority and the power of the kingdom. Go do it. But because they have nothing with them, the nature of the relationship with the people they're going into the city to meet is that it's a reciprocal relationship. There's a partnership. It's not the disciples with all the resources and all the good stuff and come to our thing and we've got this great program you should be a part of, but they come humbly and they say, is the peace of Christ resting on this house? Uh, can you feed us? Can you clothe us? Can we bathe here? Can we sleep here? There is a mutuality of relationship. And it's based on Christ and Christ alone. Often, our tendencies in the church is, is to think we have all the resources. We got all the stuff. So if we're not scarcity mindset, we think, I've, we've got all the really great programs and great ideas, and we're going to go and give it to people. And this is subtle. I'm making it sound like it's blatant, but it's subtle. Jesus was trying to encourage them, remind them that it's about partnership. He is already at work. I often talk about um, our vision for our church is that every corner in every cul-de-sac, every neighborhood, and every network in the city of Santa Barbara would have a witness to the gospel there. And I will not stop until there is a witnessing community in every place so that we don't expect people to come to our thing, but we go to them. We declare the gospel where they are. Now, growing up, I grew up right outside of Seattle in this town called Puyallup, Washington. Probably no one's ever heard of it. And um, you can only pronounce it if you're from there. It's a litmus test. So um, in my town, it was growing. It was booming in the 90s. Like everyone was moving to, to Puyallup because it's a commuter town from Seattle. So everyone was moving there. And there was this road that ran from the downtown area to the South Hill where I live called Shaw Road. And up Shaw Road, on every side, both sides, they only only two sides, both sides of the road, popping up in each of these places were these little neighborhoods, these communities, and they all had fancy names, Shalimar and Ridgeville, and, you know, they, like, had all these names that would connote this, you know, wonderful place to live. And along the way, they, you know, every single one of these little streets, communities, had the same thing. So right behind their sign with their name prominently displayed and the beautifully manicured yard, green grass, Seattle, um, was a model home. And in that model home, you could go and like step foot, try it out. What would it be like to live in this neighborhood? What would it be like to live here? Oh, nice three-car garage. We can do that for you. Or, oh, look at these modern kitchens. Great. Yard space. Great. Access to schools. Great. And people, when they wanted to see about living in this neighborhood, would go to these model homes and try it on. This image, my friends, is one of the most applicable images for what we are called to be as God's people. His model home Right, like instead of saying, come to our thing that we're doing over here, we embody the gospel in our community, relationally, inviting people to see what it's like to live under the reign of King Jesus. So whereas 
we might have a great retreat over here. We're just embodying justice, embodying hospitality, embodying this invitational spirit right where people can have access. And note that the point of it is not that there are other people who are living in the neighborhood already, but people who are checking it out. That they would come and they would see by our life together what it would look like to live your life in the kingdom of God. When I moved into my apartment complex, um, which is called Hollister Village, there they too have a little um, apartments that are model apartments and you get to see them. But um, I moved in right when I moved to California and um, I s- tried to embody the gospel. I tried just practically to live out the values of the kingdom right there in my neighborhood. So I would invite friends over and I would say, your job today is to help me throw the best barbecue and bocce ball tournament this neighborhood has ever seen. And I want you to attract attention and I want people to lean out their windows and say, what fun is that group having and who are they? And so we did. And we met regularly and had barbecues in my barbecue area. And I invite people over all the time. I would start prayer walking around the perimeter of the neighborhood. I mean, I just, I tried to be present in my neighborhood. And people, although this neighborhood, this apartment complex is made for community, I mean, it's like somebody was thinking about the kingdom when they made this place. There's like all these great spaces and um, like, it's awesome. But there's no community in this apartment complex. Everyone's behind their doors. They don't talk to each other. So now looking back, I realize how crazy I looked, but that's okay. Um, A month and a half ago, tragedy struck in my neighborhood. There was a murder-suicide and sadly, um, just rocked our whole complex. Because you can imagine if you're going through your life, just normal patterns, and then one day you show up and there's yellow tape and the entire police department of Goleta plus some, and then the news crews show up and they want to interview you about this tragedy. I mean, it's, it shakes you, right? People, they were going about their life and suddenly something happened that they felt out of control over. And then just a day after that, we heard gunshots in our neighborhood and Goleta, not, it's like high on the list of safest towns in California. I think it's like number 12. And so people were shocked by this. They were rocked. And I was one day, uh, a few days after that, out watering my plants on my, my patio. And I hear a voice coming from down below. Hello, neighbor, neighbor. So I look down. There's a woman there. And she says, I've been watching you. Creepy. <laughs> It wasn't creepy, but it sounds creepy when I tell the story. So she says, I've been watching you. Actually, my neighbor upstairs and I, we watch you. And so my, my balcony is here, and theirs are right here across this driveway. So they talk about me, they say. We talk about you because we just noticed that you have a lot of friends. I was like, okay. She's like, you have people over all the time, which is true. I have people over all the time. And they say, and they seem nice. And we, we talk about it. We joke about how we can get an invite into that girl across the hall or across the way's parties because they look fun. I'm like, well, yeah, great. You can come over anytime. And she says, the rumor has it around the apartment complex. You know people talk like this. This is like... Every neighborhood has this. You usually don't get to know about it. But she says, people talk. And the rumor about you is that you pray. It's like, yeah, I'm a pastor. 
So I hope I pray. And she said, yeah, one of the other neighbors, you know, we talked about it, and she, they say that you sometimes have prayer, people over for your house to pray. Said, yeah, I do. It's like, well, I haven't been sleeping very well. I wake up in the middle of the night thinking I'm hearing gunshots, and I'm really traumatized by everything that has gone on in our neighborhood. And I don't know, maybe, maybe I could join you for one of these prayer times? Like, oh yeah, we've got one coming up in a couple days. I made it up on the spot. We didn't, but we did then. <laughs> we've got one coming up. We would love to have you come and pray. And since then, I've gathered neighbors twice now for prayer. We'll gather again on the second. And the invitation to come into my living room and pray with me would never have been accepted had they not watched me do this and had they not had this experience in their own life. That God's activity in their life was already setting up the stage so that she would come in and pray with me. Friends, this is partnership, not just with people, but with God and his power. Not just with people who um, we become mutually beneficial to one another in relationship and care deeply about them. But God is already at work in our networks. God is already at work in our neighborhoods. God is already doing a thing beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. And he calls us to partner with him in that. I went recently to a conference on church planning, and I heard Michael Frost speak. And he said that the mission of God's people is to alert everyone everywhere of the universal reign of God in Christ Jesus. You know, he didn't make that up. He stole it from the Great Commission in Matthew, right? This is essentially what the commission says, that our job is to alert people of the reign of God. It's not our job to, to make the kingdom happen. He is already king on the throne. He is resurrected, Lord. And we invite people into that experience. We become the model home for them. But I think Jesus' invitation for the disciples is the same invitation that is for us, to own the field to care about our neighbors, to take spiritual responsibility for those who are not yet in this room. We need to shift our thinking from saying, who is here, to ask once again, who is not here? And how can we go and reach them with the good news? Spiritual responsibility and ownership over the entire field is not about us. It is about God. It's about his compelling vision the gospel that transforms us. Some of us need to be reminded again today of the gospel of Jesus. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That he came in bodily form to live a life we could not live. Died a death that was brutal and horrible, but raised to life, conquering sin, death, and the grave. And gives us glorious life, full life in him that we might come under his authority and his reign as Lord and King, and that we might be his people, declaring with our lives and our words the coming kingdom and its goodness. So will you own the field, the whole field? That's Jesus' question for us today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the good news of the gospel for your reign and your rule. Lord, thank you for neighbors that you have given us to know, know their name, be in relationship with them. And we pray, Lord, that we would understand that you are a God of abundance, you're a God of grace, you're a God of partnership, and Lord, your kingdom is growing not by just addition, but multiplication. So Lord, help us to be part of your kingdom work. 
joyfully in response to your grace. Pray this in the name of Jesus the King.